Apple or a smartphone or some device, you'll be looking at the text with us. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. So we've been in Hebrews for the last uh, few months. We took a one-week hiatus last week as we kind of looked at the holiday season and how a believer um, can kind of walk in the traditions and different aspects of it, how we can be worshipers in the midst of this kind of six-week season. Um, But we're going to be back in Hebrews this morning. Just a a little bit of recap. Um, Remember, Hebrews is written um, most likely prior to 70 AD. We do not know the author, but it was written to a Christian um, group of folks who had all come out of Judaism. So it was kind of like their Jewish background, but now believers. And so it's, it's being written because some turmoil, suffering, strife has entered into the life of this church. And the question that they're beginning to ask is this, is should we go back to Judaism? Judaism is legal, Christianity isn't. If we ease back into, Christi- into Judaism, maybe the pressure in life will back off a little bit. And the author of Hebrews is just with a resounding no, is saying, no, don't do that. You don't know what's at stake. Jesus is better. He is sufficient. He is more than enough for us. He's more than enough for what we need. And so he has constantly walked us through the first nine chapters, just holding Jesus up and saying he's better. He is sufficient. He is enough. Don't walk away from him. And one of the things that we need to constantly um, really be reminded of so that we will see Jesus is as good and glorious as he actually is, is to be reminded of our need. Earlier this year, we preached through an Old Testament prophetic book of Amos, where we're reminded that God cares deeply about whether or not we are reflecting his image and his glory rightly to the world, whether we are being faithful and trusting and following and obeying him. Right, that we have a need. And so in Hebrews 3, we even saw that the, the, the initial group of people that he rescued out of Egypt, and we have in the book of Exodus, they don't make it to the promised land because they grumble and they complain and they don't trust God. And they, they eventually say, even though you've done all of this for, you, for us, we don't trust you. And so that first generation missed out on the promised land. They missed out on what was given to them because the Lord said, look, my anger was kindled. And they didn't get rest because of it. That we have a need. And our need is to be with God. It's what we were created for. It's in Revelation what we are, we are longing for and will be restored to us. But in the meantime, we need someone to get us back, to get us access to the Father. And that's where Jesus has stepped into human history. And so let's pick up in Hebrews 10 and look at this access that is given to us. Verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I will come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices, and offerings, and burnt offerings, and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. 
Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, and I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're going to stop there in chapter 10. So really, what, here's what's happening in, in chapter 10, is the author is just, he wants to hold Jesus up. And to say, look at him and consider how good he is, how much he's done for us. And as we are entering the Advent season, this reminder that Jesus has come. So while we're celebrating hope this morning is the first kind of theme of Advent, that we need to be reminded that we have hope, we have access. And so what the author has done throughout his, his letter is he is taking the Old Testament, specifically kind of the sacrificial priestly system, And he's using it as a backdrop, right, to compare and contrast Jesus. And so if we really want to look at it this way, what has happened was that for thousands of years, there was this system in place that was setting the stage that we would more clearly, more succinctly understand what Jesus has done for us, right? That it was setting up this this thing that was a a foreshadowing. It was a type. It was a shadow. If you look at verse 1, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, right? That he is saying, look, Jesus, I want you to look at him compared to what we had. And these old things weren't wrong. They weren't bad, but they were a shadow of what was to come. And Jesus has stepped into history as the true form, the one that was creating the shadow. He, he's setting the stage for us to see Jesus and to glorify him. The priestly system was setting the stage for us to understand what Jesus has done. So remember, they're, they're considering going back to Judaism. And so what the author is saying is this, are you really willing to go back to the shadow over the actual thing? Are you going back to the blurry, kind of like, it's, we can't quite see, but we get a feel for what's happening? Or do you want the thing that's casting the shadow? Right? Do you want the, the reality, the form, or the thing you see on the ground? Right? And so there have, maybe has been a time in your life 
right, where you were afraid and you were looking for someone, you felt alone, and you, and you see the outline of their shadow, maybe in the grocery store if you were a little kid, or in Walmart, or maybe in, in, in a home, and you see that, and you're like, it's got, a, it's got a hat, I think that's my dad. You don't run and hug the shadow. You turn to see what's making the shadow. You're looking to grab onto that which is real, not the shadow that's been cast. But the shadow gave you hope in the moment before you saw the reality. And so he's saying, are you really willing to go back to the shadow when Jesus has come in the flesh, has lived the life we were meant to, died the death that we could not um, begin to pay for to satisfy God, and is alive today? Are you really willing to go back to a sacrificial system, as he shows in, in the first few verses, right? That continually offered sacrifices, verse 2, every year, right? Because it could not make perfect. They're having to do it over and over and over again. He's wanting us to see this contrast. Right? Verse 3. Sorry, that was verse 1. Otherwise, verse 2, would they not have ceased to be offered? So he's like, look, if they could have made perfect, if, if the, the constant sacrifices could have accomplished what they were meant to, He's like, they would have ceased to have been offered, but they didn't. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, because every year they would come on the Day of Atonement and would be reminded, we're in desperate need of rescue. We're in desperate need of forgiveness, and we can't, we can't get it. But now look down at verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 14. For by a single offering, he, meaning Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So he's wanting us to see this sharp contrast of annual sacrifices, of constant activity, of constant things going on. And then Jesus, um, his like finality, when he does it, it's done, it's once, and it's for all. In verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly, the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And so we know that for, for generations, the priests were never sitting down. There were no seats in the tabernacle. There were no seats in the temple area because they were working, making sacrifices for themselves, doing sacrifices on the behalf of others. The work never ended. And you're talking to a Jewish background audience who would have known and understood that hustle and the bustle and right, like in the fact that it just felt like it was never sufficient and never enough because you knew in your heart, right, that you weren't clean even if you had gone through this outward ritual. That it was futile. And obviously there were no mics to drop. But this is what he's doing in verse 12. So he's given them this picture of the hustle and the bustle. And then in verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God. He wants us to see that sharp contrast of the hustle and the bustle and the futile activity. And then Jesus does it once and he sits down and he's done. Right? Like there's, there's no comparison to us of like the significance of this, of how big this is. Right? Like even if we try to think about people attempting to do something kind of crazy. And then all of a sudden a guy steps in and closes his eyes and makes the shot. You know, and you're like, you know, everyone goes, ah, right. Like. What Jesus is doing is he says, what you have attempted to do for thousands of years is now done. And it's so done, I'm going to sit down. Because there's nothing left to be done. It has been accomplished. 
And he's saying, so that's, that's the reality. Do you really want to go back to the shadow? Do you really want to go back to the, the annual sacrifice, the, the, the sacrifices day in and day out, the hustle and bustle and the futile activity? Another sharp contrast that would have happened, because remember, if these are folks that have come out of Judaism, was in the first century, the Christian church, those who were coming to faith in Jesus, were not offering sacrifices in, in worship services. Because they saw that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. Now you have to think, what were they familiar with? What were they comfortable with? What would have been the norm? It would have been to have continued to do some sacrifices and tried to like throw some Jesus on it, right? To make it not Jewish, but now it's Christian. And they don't. There are no sacrifices because of this. They said Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. It was enough. It's how they saw him. The sacrifices and the sacrificial system, what were they for then? Listen, the, the thing that God has always wanted from us was trust and obedience. Was to know him, was to love him, was to trust him, was to obey him. And the, sacrifice, the sacrificial system, the sacrifices were a tangible way for the people to show devotion, trust, and obedience. And knowing, look, this goat, this bull, whatever I'm sacrificing, it's not sufficient to take away my sins. But you've promised that you're going to make a way. And so in the meantime, I'm trusting that. I'm going to be obedient to what you've called me to. And so I'm going to, I'm going to offer this sacrifice. God never wanted the sacrifices simply for the sake of sacrifices. It was, he wants our heart. It's why um, the author quotes in verse 5, 6, and 7 from Psalm 40. Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body, speaking of Jesus, you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Right? We see this as well in 1 Samuel 15, uh, verse 22. Samuel, right, as he's talking to the king Saul, and he says, look, has the Lord as great of delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And we see this reiterated in Isaiah and in Jeremiah and Amos and in Micah throughout the Old Testament. In Psalm 51, when, when David is confessing his own sin, the point is, is what God wants is not mere sacrifices. He wants us. He wants our hearts. He wants our obedience. And it's why we'll see in Amos 5 or Isaiah 1 or in a variety of other passages that God will say often, your sacrifices stink and I hate your worship. And it wasn't that they were offering bad sacrifices. It was that their hearts were detached. Their minds were detached. And they were simply going through the motions of saying, Okay, God, no longer do I think what you want is obedience and and faith and trust. What I think you want is just this meat. And so they would go through the motions and assume that God was pleased. When he said, that was never what I wanted. What I wanted was you. What I wanted was your heart and your attention and your worship and your trust. And so Jesus steps in and lives this life for us, right? He, he lives a trusting, obedient life, a life of sacrifice on our behalf. Look at verse 21. And since we have a great high priest, meaning Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near Back in verse 20, by the new and living way 
that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And so what he's doing again is he's drawing a comparison. We knew that there was a curtain, a veil, that separated the Holy of Holies, where this once a year sacrifice would take place, from the rest. It was this tangible separation, but it was also once a year the way in, where the high priest would step in and and would do what was necessary. He says, now the way in is no longer through a curtain. It is through the flesh, the blood, the life, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus. That that is the way we have access. That is the way that we'll have the Father now. That's the way we get to Him is through Jesus. And it's why... Right, Christianity has always been exclusive. Because it's not that there's a lot of paths, a lot of ways. It's why Jesus in John 14 will say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father except through me. Why? Because the way in was his body crushed on our behalf, satisfying and appeasing the wrath of God. Because he had lived the the obedient life on our behalf, died on our behalf, and then fulfilled the promises of Scripture by living again. That is the way that we have access to the Father. He's the one that's taking us through. It's no longer through a veil or a curtain that has been torn. It is through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's why there's no more annual sacrifices. Right? That's why we don't do these things that would make us just outwardly clean. Because through his sacrifice, look at what he's accomplished for us. Verse 17. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Like there's forgiveness. Verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's why we're not making sin offerings this morning. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's saying the things that they used to do, the ceremonies that they would do to wash and to cleanse were always outward as a way of saying, we know we need this outwardly and inwardly. And he's saying, now Jesus has done it. He has washed you and purified you and cleansed you inwardly so that you can stand before a holy God now. The idea of being sprinkled was how covenants were ratified. It was blood was taken in Exodus and it was sprinkled across on the people, right? Like they're saying, this is, this is what's co- like holding the covenant. And now he's saying Jesus has sprinkled us and made us clean in Christ so that we have access to the Father now. In Ephesians 2, we see this picture of, of our salvation. Let me read a couple of very familiar verses to you. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. That's the part that we know and we're familiar with. But in verse 10 it continues. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's what he's saying. He's like, you are saved, not because you've done anything, by grace, by faith in Jesus. He's accomplished it for you. But you are then created for good works that God has already prepared that you would walk in them. What the church has often done is it's moved the works before the salvation and said, if you do these things, Jesus will see you're a good team player. He'll save you and you've earned your salvation. Instead, we are to be faithful. We are to be obedient. We are to follow and to pursue God. After we're saved, 
right? Because we've been created for them to show that we have been stamped, marked with the image of God, that we're his. And so Hebrews is going to take this idea and is going to give us some thoughts here that after our salvation, we are to walk in. He gives us three. Look at verse 22. So let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Draw near to who? Draw near to God. The veil has been torn. Jesus has given us access. And so now, church, as those who have, in verse 14, it says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You have his perfection put upon you. And you are being sanctified. You are being made holy through the rest of your life until either he returns or you meet him in your death. You are being sanctified, being made more like Jesus. And so the first thing he wants us to do is to draw near. To draw near to God. To have access because he has acquired it for us with a true heart, which means there's no pretense. Because the thing is, is the Lord can still hate our worship if it's phony. If we're coming to church simply to be seen, if we're opening our Bible so that someone will notice, if there's no desire to be near to God, but simply to be seen as one who is near to God, that is the things that he has said, I hate and it stinks before me. But the way that we draw near, right, isn't that we are building a spiritual resume to impress others. It's not merely in church attendance. It's not merely in morality or going to certain places, certain buildings. It's not simply responding to an altar call one time and praying a canned prayer. Right? It is pursuing God through the ways that he has left us to draw near to him. What are those ways? He has given us his spirit. Right? Jesus tells the disciples, it's better for you if I leave. Why? Because you won't just have me here. You're going to have the spirit within you. He has left us his spirit so that we would hear the promises, that we would be reminded of them, that we would be sealed by him. So he's left us his spirit to, to be familiar, to be able to understand scripture, right? For, for God to be able to, to intervene and to interact with us. He's also left us his word that's God breathed. It's alive, right? That it's able to discern our thoughts and our motives and our intents. Right? It's able to work and to speak, to move and to convict. He's left us a living king. That Jesus is not dead in a tomb. That he is alive today. Your prayers and your songs are being heard by more than the folks in the room. And they're not just bouncing off a brick wall. But they are being heard by a living king. Who is waiting for us. To return for us. Who is also not just our king but is our high priest who is praying on your behalf before the throne of God. And he's saying, follow me in. I'm restoring to you your place with the Father. He's also left us access. He's also left us hope, right? Joy, peace. Like we're at peace with God now. We're no longer enemies. And he's left us one another. That we're not to do this alone. That we are headed somewhere and we're doing it together. And his, his letter to the church here has been, I don't want to lose you. I want us to get to the rest. I want us to get to the Father together. So let's grab on and pursue him with one another. Listen, 
the, the, the question here is not, are you doing things that are spiritual in nature, but are you engaging your heart? Is there energy behind these things? Because here's what can happen, right? I can sit on the couch with Carmen at the end of a long day, and she can begin to talk to me about her day, and I can have a laptop or a computer or a remote or a, a book or something, and I can begin to say, uh-huh, yep, uh-huh. As she's talking, and I'm not really paying attention, right? Like, I'm kind of engaged, I'm kind of not. And, like, I'm, I'm going through the... Like, we are having a semblance of a conversation, but it's, I'm not drawing near to her because I'm not engaged in it. My heart's not in it. My mind is not in it. But I have... If she says, you'll never talk to me, I'm like, oh, we talked last night on the couch. She's like, yeah, that doesn't count. So now, for us, church... Are we ahine in our spiritual matters? Are we engaged in our hearts as we pursue Him in prayer? As we pursue Him in the Word? As we draw near with our, our brothers and sisters in our church family? Are we ahine? Are we engaging our hearts and our minds, seeing that He has accomplished it? We're just meant to walk in it now, to put forth effort. The second thing is verse 23. So not only should we draw near, but let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So he says, I want you to remember the hope that you have is in the gospel that Jesus has done, right? That God has restored you. He's bought you. He's made you his. Hold on to it and don't let go because the world is going to look to shake you loose. The values of the world are going to change frequently and often. So if you look back through human history, Values in major cultures just kind of ebb and flow, right? In and out and away. And he's saying, I want you to hold on. You're considering leaving this. Don't retreat. Don't go back to what's familiar. Don't worry about shifting values. You hold on to the hope that you have. And that hope is this, that Jesus has come for you and that his sacrifice is sufficient and that he will see you through to the end. That he has done the work. He has accomplished it. You just have to trust him. And if you're thinking this morning, man, I can barely hold on any longer. We can be reminded in John that he says, those who are in my father's hand, his strong and mighty hand will not be taken. He holds on to us. He holds on to us. So in order to do this, in order to live, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Listen to how it ends. For he who promised is faithful. We have to be drawing near, be in the word to know what the promises are that we should be clinging to and hoping in. That he is faithful. Are you remembering the ways that he's been faithful? Are you noting them? Because often God's faithfulness to us in the past is the fuel that we need to trust for his provision in the future. That when we look back and go, God, I don't know how you got me out of that, but you did. Oh can trust because i'm going through something similar i saw how you rescued them and you were faithful to them i trust your provision for me right that his past faithfulness and it's why in exodus right we we just like run our hands through our hair if we had any and we say how could you forget like look at what god has done He's, he's poured water out of a rock. He's fed you from manna. He's rescued you from Pharaoh. He's opened up the Red Sea. He's led you by a pillar of fire and by a smoke. And you're like, ah, but what have you done for me today, God? And he's saying, look at all this. 
And if you see all this, then you can trust I'm going to be there tomorrow. And I'm going to be there the next day. That my grace, my mercies are new every morning. That he is faithful and that he is sufficient. And that we would cling to those things. And the third thing is this. It's not just that we would cling to what is true. That we would draw near by all the ways that he has given us to have access. And then the third and final one is this. Verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together. He's saying this to them. What you need is each other. You need one another. Don't neglect to get together. And you need to consider, think about how do I stir one another up? And this word stir one another up is, is, is what it sounds like. Right? You, you see a couple um, have their first baby. And then they're reminded, man, I'm more selfish than I thought I was. I liked my time more than I thought I did. I am inconvenienced by this small one. Right? I love them, but you're not convenient, right? Like, I mean, the, these, these thoughts are going through your head. That child is stirring up things in you that you thought were okay. And now you're being revealed that I don't look as much like Jesus as I thought. And I need to grow in some things. Right? And not being so selfish. And being able to serve, right? And doing, right? Relationships can do that to us too. Parental relationships. Romantic relationships. And here's what he's saying. So church, you get together and be together often enough and frequently enough and with enough transparency that you kind of stir some stuff up. Because we're not pretending. We need each other. And we need each other to, to point us out to Jesus. And we need him to draw out godliness in us. And he needs us to draw out sin so that we can confess it and that we can grow from it. And so if all the church looks like is showing up on Sunday morning with a smile on your face while you are dying on the inside or rebelling or fighting things, and then you do your, your deed for an hour on Sunday mornings, then you get out and you live your life, he's like the church then isn't stirring one another up to good works, to godliness, to trusting him, to love. But when I know how to pray for you, when you know how to pray for me, when we know how to pray for one another, when we know what you're struggling with, how to stir some things up, how to bring, right? Look, he's not giving you permission to be a jerk here, okay? And just in case that needs to be said. He's not saying, I get to be the jerk that just stirs the pot. No. What he's saying is, are we walking with one another in a way that we know what's going on? That we can demonstrate love. So we can demonstrate grace. When you sin against me, we can demonstrate forgiveness when, I for, when you forgive me for when I've sinned against you. That there are four dozen one another statements in Scripture that we are to bear with one another. To bear with one another means there's something to bear. That we are to forgive one another means there could be sin that we commit against one another, intentionally or not. That we are to love one another. That we are to pray for one another. That we are to show hospitality to one another. How do we do these things? By verse 25. By not neglecting to meet together. As is the habit of some. But encouraging one another. Listen. And it means that we're meeting together more frequently than Sunday mornings. Right? It's why at Redeemer we have gospel communities. 
Because we're trying to live out what we saw in Acts, where it says they were meeting together daily. They're breaking bread. They're listening to the apostles' teaching. They're praying. They're, they're in one another's lives because we need one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Right? Culture is not going to learn to love us more. Right? And I don't just mean like we are headed to an inevitable end of human history. Like, Scripture has promised us that. It's not going to get easier or better. It's going to get harder. And if you're on your own as a believer, you are going to struggle. Right? You're going to struggle. You're going to consider forsaking what Jesus has done. So he says, we lock arms together. Now listen, here's also what he's not saying. He's not saying then we, we shut the doors and, and, and put up, like, and say, no one else is in. It's like, no, we're on mission. There are folks out there I love and I'm calling to me and I'm pouring out my grace. And the reason he has been patient is that more would come to know him, that more would trust him, that more would love him. And so what we're doing is we're living in the world in this dark place that's in desperate need of hope. And but we're doing it together so that we aren't lost or forsaken, so that we don't shrink back or lose hope or give up the fight. That we do this together, encouraging, demonstrating our love, our value, reminding one another, and pursuing others. Listen, Hebrews 10 says Jesus changes our relationship to the Father because he takes us from enemies and makes us sons and daughters, giving us access back to our Father, just as it was intended. But Jesus also changes our relationships with one another, that we are responsible for one another. That he has made us a family where we will stir one another up and encourage one another to love and to good works. And guess what? That's going to be messy. It's not going to be convenient or easy, right? It's going to be like the newborn at 2.30. You're like, I just want to sleep. Because our sin isn't always convenient or easy. Our struggles aren't always convenient or easy. They don't always come from 8 to 5 during office hours. But we're made a family. And so the picture that we want to end with this morning is he is calling this church. He's calling us and saying, so lock arms together. As you're constantly looking out for others to join you. And you move towards Jesus, following him back to the Father. Where we will get rest forever. We will get Jesus forever. Because he has perfected us and he is sanctifying us. And he is enough. Don't forsake that. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we confess that we often um, just want easy. We want comfort. We want things that are familiar. Father, that we're concerned with whether there will be grace if we share our need or our sin. And yet you have told us in Romans that it is through your kindness that you lead us to repentance. Father, would we grow as a church family and be in a place where it is okay not to be okay, but where we don't stay there, where you are sanctifying and transforming. God, where we're continuing to see new brothers and sisters brought into the family as they realize that you have died for them. You've lived the life they couldn't live and you have made them right with the Father. God, would we look to lift each other's chins and to be reminded of God's faithfulness and his promises when we're weak or struggling or when we are quick to forget.
God, thank you that you haven't asked us to navigate this life alone, but that you have given us your spirit. You've given us the example of Jesus to follow. You've given us your word. And you have given us one another. And that there is something to hope in. That there is access to you. That we have not been left alone. Father, would we be faithful as individuals in this, but would we be faithful as a body in this as well? God, this morning we may need to confess sin to others in the room. Would you give us the courage to do that, trusting that you will stir up love and good works? God, would we not nod our heads in agreement in a passage that sounds kind of quaint? God, but would we be willing to lean in and fight for these things, to be a family? Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.